Hey, thanks for joining us from whenever and wherever you are joining us from. We are so glad that you chose to be with us today as you join us for this live stream. A couple things we wanted to mention as we start. Uh, Apparently this week someone got a text message that was from me that wasn't actually from me asking someone to do a couple things like call them back and stuff like that. If you ever get a text message from me and I sign my name, Pastor Aaron Carlberg, it's not not from me. Or if I'm asking you to do something like get a gift card from a store, if you got a text message that said, hey, can you send me some cookies? That might be from me. But really just about anything else, it's not from me. So just keep that in mind. There's scammers out there doing a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, Again, as we've been doing in the middle of the message, a slide will come up about halfway through that's going to ask a question. And that question enables you to be able to take care of your kids, get some coffee, maybe even pause right there and journal an answer down and talk to some people who are around you. And then we're just going to keep going. Just keep that in mind for when we get there. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called version. When you get version, you can click on more and then events and we will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in our area. If not, you can type in the zip code 93455. We will come up and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. Now my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element and if you are so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word wherever you are. And this is Acts 27 verses 43 and 44. This is what it says. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take us today and have us be those who trust you and the words that you have spoken, so that we'd begin to live lives that fully reflect who you are in the world around us, that you would gain glory by how we live, that people would see better who you are by how your children live in the world, and that through all things that we would be those who worship you in all that we do. Amen. All right, so we are coming to the close of our second part of the book of Acts. We have just five weeks left after this week. Uh, This is week 38, and today we are actually going to get to the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul and his companions on their way to Rome. Now, I've read lots of things about this section, and a lot of people focus on the shipwreck, and we are going to talk about that, but I also want to talk about the why. Why would God allow Paul to go through these things? Why does God allow these things in our lives. And I think it has to do, obviously, with God's Spirit and God leading, but I think it also is to strengthen us and our demeanor and our lifestyle of how we live in the world. For Paul, you'll see how he interacts with the guards and the other prisoners and the sailors. Now, there is this term that was coined years ago. It is called lifestyle evangelism. And that means not just our words, but the actions of our lives is going to reflect God's grace and who he is and how we speak about him in the world, how we live our lives. Now, that term lifestyle evangelism, it has been lampooned by some people, and and rightly so in some ways, because some people feel like they never need to speak about Jesus at all. They just say, oh, I'm just going to live my life a certain way. But if we don't speak, how will people know why we are living the way that we are? And so we are called to both live and speak the good news both. When we combine our words and actions, it does lead to God being proclaimed in new and real ways. And this is what Paul does throughout the book of Acts and really on this ship by simply being himself. 
Paul lives his life with and for Jesus. It is not something he hides. It is something that he boldly proclaims with words and a life that invite others to follow Jesus as well, even in the midst of this shipwreck. And and as I said, I think this is what in the end is going to change the soldier's perspective, which we'll see over the next couple weeks, especially in the Rick ship that you look at today. So, so far, what has happened is you've seen Paul and his companions get put on a ship. Now, here's a map. I showed you this map last week. And in this map, they've gone to a couple ports. But the captain of the ship that Paul is on is also a merchant. And he wants to get his cargo to the market to make a profit. So he is not sailing conservatively. He just wants to get there. Now, when they come to this port that's called Fair Havens, Paul looks around at the wind and the waves and the time of year that it is. And he says, hey, you know what? Fairhaven sounds like a nice place. Maybe we should hang out here for the winter. And the captain of the ship essentially kind of says, shut up, I'm the sailor, you're not, we're going to go. And they decide to put out and go for the next port, which is this place called Phoenix, which is only 40 miles away, and they never make it there. Now, even modern boats with all their sophisticated equipment in this part of the world still have trouble during the winter making it through the Adriatic Sea. Uh, there are movies of shipwrecks, not just here, but all over the world. And this is what happens a lot. People get in situations they are not ready for, and the ships go down. Now, the ship Paul was on was known as a trade ship. They were taking a bunch of cargo and grain from Egypt up into the hungry, unemployed mob that was in the city of Rome. And the ship captain of ships like this, their job was not a fun one. Because really, if they pulled into a port and there is a Roman centurion there, their ship can be commandeered to hold prisoners and whatever else the Roman centurions wanted them to do. So, really, everywhere they go, they're kind of afraid someone's going to tell them they have to carry some prisoners, and that's what happened to this guy. So in the middle of the ocean, they take off, the storm comes up, there's really nowhere to hide. Paul ended up being right in his advice that they should have stayed at Fair Havens, and he tells them so, which is also interesting that when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, tact is not one of those that he lists in there. But the captain gambles and he loses. They start to toss all the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. They take ropes and they wrap ropes around the ship to hold it together as it's buffeted by the winds and the waves all trying to keep their ship together. They will even, you'll see in a moment, start to throw out multiple anchors to slow down the ship as it runs headlong towards this Libyan coast. Now, if you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 27. Now, the whole point of the voyage for the captain, it was to get his grain up into Rome. But the whole point of the voyage for God was to get Paul to Rome, and more importantly, how God was going to do that and what he was going to teach people in the process. Because God is teaching a lot of people a lot of things, even us 2,000 years later, by how he gets Paul to Rome. In Acts 27, verses 14 and 15, this is how this whole thing starts to take place as they try to make that next port. It says, But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now, last week we talked a bit about superstitions, and that right there is actually superstition on the, on the sailor's part on this ship. Because where you read Northeaster in your translation, the word is actually this funky Greek word, and it's called Eurocludon. 
And it's there because this is what the sailors thought was this evil force that sat up on the mount of this place called Ida, which is where Zeus was said to live. And it came down off the mountain and got weary travelers on the sea. The Eurachlodon, it comes to get you. So they come to grips with this scary moment of what's taking place as the Eurachlodon is trying to destroy them. They start freaking out and Paul speaks into the midst of that. And says, no, God is the one who is in control. And God is the one who has spoken and said, we're all going to come safely to land, but the ship is going to be destroyed. Now, Acts 27, verse 27, this is where we left off last week. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That's 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. That is 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow... Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Now what's interesting here is that people seem to start listening to Paul. After he said, you should have stayed at Fairhaven, like, ah, whatever, and they take off. And Paul's like, I told you so, but God has said these things. They seem to start listening to him. And you have these sailors here who are looking to save their own skins by letting this boat down and sailing off and letting everybody else perish. And Paul says, don't let him go. God says, we stay together and we're all going to get there. And so the centurion listens to him. They cut the boat away and everybody has to stay. And you will see that there, it has been 14 days that they have been on this open sea being tossed around. No one's in control. They're just being driven along. And a lot of commentators liken this shipwreck to the Titanic. I don't know why, except that they were both ships and they both wrecked. Other than that, they really have nothing in common. Like the Titanic had 1,500 passengers. This ship had 276. Uh, The Titanic had rich passengers. This one had some soldiers, some sailors, and some prisoners. The Titanic had all kinds of goods on it. 15,000 bottles of ale and stout went down with the Titanic. That's kind of sad, if, if you know me. Uh, they had 30 cases of golf clubs, which I really don't care about, 30,000 fresh eggs, five grand pianos, a cask of china for Tiffany's, plus all those people. A Paul ship, all it had was some grain, and they start throwing that overboard. Uh, verse 33 of chapter 27. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now that is a euphemism. It doesn't mean if someone's getting off the boat and one hair fell out of somebody's head, God failed. (laughs) Like, God, you failed. I lost a hair. That's not what it's saying. This is a euphemism of saying you will all be saved. You're going to be okay. And when he had said these things, He took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And what is the response to how Paul endures this? Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. 
Now, a wreck of any kind is scary. I have been in a few in my life, but I have never been in a shipwreck. And people say shipwrecks are the most scary wrecks to be in because there's no breaks and you know something's going to happen, but you don't know when exactly you're going to go down. And believe it or not, Acts 27 is the tale of one of the most famous shipwrecks in history. You can still go visit where they think the ship actually went down. It is also one of the most detailed shipwrecks in ancient history. Now, for me, I get sick on a swing. I can't imagine being 14 days on a ship back and forth and back and forth and saying, oh, land's coming up. We got to do this thing and take something to eat. I don't know if I could take something to eat because I'd be throwing it up the entire time. It's horrible. The ship is all over the place. They start throwing down anchor after anchor and that anchor gets tight and they cut it and they throw down another anchor and that one gets tight and they cut it. Archaeologists have actually found this to be true. They will find like a series of one anchor, two anchor, three anchor, four anchor, and then they will find a wrecked ship. It is all these things to show that this is actually what happened and what people went through. And so there's the wrecked ship. And they drop those anchors because if you don't, a ship going that fast is going to break up much worse and much more dangerous than if it wasn't slowed down just a little bit. So Acts 27, verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned it possible to run the ship ashore. I would say, wreck it gently. Verse 40. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. And you might think that sounds a little bit odd. Like, why would they do that? You know, well, Roman soldiers were trained to kill people in cold blood and warm blood and any temperature blood. And if they didn't and the prisoners got away, it's not a slap on the wrist. It's not a stern talking to you. You as a Roman soldier would be killed. Somebody escaping because of a shipwreck, that is not an excuse. So in their minds, it's better to kill everybody so nobody gets away. If you remember all the way back in Acts 16, Paul and Silas end up in jail. And this earthquake takes place and all the jail doors open. And the jailer comes in and sees it. And he's like, oh no, everybody got away. And he's ready to kill himself until Paul says, no, 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 we're still here. Because it's more humane to take your own life than what Rome would do to you if you had let some prisoners escape. So, no sentimentality, no common sense, no feelings of friendship for the prisoners allowed. Except something was happening with this one centurion that was over all the other soldiers. Paul was making an impression on him. Now, Rome doesn't get where it is by allowing people to go soft at critical moments. And yet, this centurion realizes that God is at work. Somehow, he doesn't understand in what is taking place here. And so, he stops everyone else from wanting to kill all the prisoners in order to save Paul. The centurion now saves the day. Verse 43. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, this is a centurion that you see treated Paul kindly from the very beginning, and he hasn't regretted it, although he didn't take Paul's advice at Fairhavens to wait there for the winter. But now he starts to see a larger vision that his subordinates maybe don't see yet, and he will do the wrong thing according to Rome, which was actually the right thing according to Paul by saving all these people's lives. And what Luke is doing is walking us through each piece of this wreck to show how fragile Paul's journey seemed. There is risk everywhere. 
everywhere. And yet, God is still sovereign over every single bit of it. You know, someone once pointed out the same thing with Jesus. God comes in the flesh. Did Jesus ever get a cold? Most likely, most likely it's part of the human experience. And so in one sense, there's the reality of God's sovereignty over everything, that nothing can stop what God intends to do. But then there is the everyday moments of our lives as we begin to weave through the places that God takes us. Like we never know how God will ultimately work out his final plan even while trusting it. What if, what if Jesus did get the flu or got kicked by a camel? You know, what happens there? And in following Jesus, we step into one of the most sure, but also one of the most risky endeavors we can ever be a part of. I mean, think about how God rescues us. God sends Jesus to a human family, and in the end, he will die as a result. And yet God had a plan. He was sovereign over all. He knew what he was doing. And sometimes we get so self-focused that we assume that God's job is only to bless us with what we consider to be good things. Now, here's the slide with my question for you at home. So it's this. When was the last time you had to trust Jesus when your ship, metaphorically, was going down? What did that look like? Or maybe a second question would be instead, you know, maybe the last time your ship was going down and you didn't trust Jesus, what happened in the midst of that? You know, how did you live your life in places that were very scary and you were completely unsure? What did that look like? Now, we're going on. N.T. Wright says this, If we say that the risk isn't really that great because God remains in control, Luke would say emphatically that that is both thoroughly true and thoroughly misleading. He says, The apparent clash of overruling providence and utter human wickedness seen so graphically in those references to the crucifixion is worked out not through everything being cheerfully determined in advance so that all we have to do is sit back and watch it unfold. The answer to the puzzle of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is not to be found in a formula, but in flesh and blood. In Jesus' flesh, in Jesus' blood, and in our flesh, and our blood. That means how we live our lives through each of the circumstances, knowing that God is sovereign, but we live each day not knowing where God is actually going to take us. And if we think everything in our lives is going to be easy, we haven't been reading the scriptures and especially not the book of Acts. Now, it is true that we do not have to grope in the dark and be unsure of God's ultimate purpose because we know where history is ultimately going to go. And in that sense, we have security, we have hope, we have assurance of God's rescuing presence. But in our daily journey, we don't know what's going to end up in a shipwreck and what's going to be like smooth sailing. See what I did there? goes with Acts. Anyway, you have to see how Luke moves this narrative forward in the story. He says these things to help us see what God is actually doing. He, he's on this ship with Paul. In Acts 27, verses 18 through 20, it says, Since we were violently storm-tossed, so he's part of that, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so Luke speaks of this overwhelming dread that came upon everybody. The sailors' hope was abandoned. The the prisoners' hope was abandoned. The soldiers' hope was abandoned. It's very dire. In verse 31, there's these sailors who think it's so dire they're going to try and take this ship and sneak off and let everybody else die thinking that they're going to make it. And Paul stops that. So in verse 34, then Paul breaks bread with everyone and he reminds them of what God said. He reminds them of the salvation that God has promised them from this mess. And he says, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That would be a reference to how those soldiers would interpret the word salvation. 
And then in verse 43, the centurion makes sure that not a hair was harmed on Paul's head when he says you don't get to kill any of those prisoners. And they are all utterly saved and come to land. Luke is using this idea to help us all understand what salvation means in the midst of this. It is God's rescue of us, but it's also God's leading in every single circumstance. Paul will say this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I can live the way that I do, trusting God in all things, because in one sense, I was already dead in my sins. And Jesus brought me back to life. And so in one sense, I'm dead, and now I'm alive to him. I can trust him in all things. Paul's lifestyle of trusting God in each and every circumstance would have spoken volumes to the centurion and to the sailors and to the other prisoners who are all going to Rome. If you see the soldiers, they're so fickle. You know, the Eurocladon, it's going to come and get us. It's all that superstition about everything. Yet Paul, in the midst of this tragedy, he is sure he is moving forward to what God is calling him to. He doesn't waver. He doesn't wonder if God's angry or displeased. He knew that through hardships that God is always faithful. How does Paul know that God is always faithful? Because God came in the person of Jesus to rescue us. That's how he knows. And there is this storm that's destroying everything. They cut anchor after anchor. But Paul himself is anchored to God's unfailing promises. Not promises to never have hardship, but to bring us always where God intends for us to go. And that means when we trust that, we can live certain lifestyles that live and speak about the gracious good news of God. And I think there are three things that you see in Paul that can help us to do that. First one is this. We must remember that we are a people who have God's presence with us every single day. Now, sometimes it's true. We feel God's presence much more acutely than other times. But God is with us every single day, no matter what comes our way. He will never forsake us. Uh, Kent Hughes says this gives us the ability to have courage in our trials, that we are people who get to be anchored by God's presence. Now, unlike Paul, most of us don't get messages or visions from angels. And I don't know if I'd want one because I'd probably freak out really bad if an angel showed up and tried to talk to me. But what we do get, Kent Hughes says, is the still, gentle assurance of the Holy Spirit and God's Holy Word. We get something that Paul never even had, and that is those New Testament scriptures. We have God's word that we get to take with with us, and most of us have it on our phone no matter where we go. We get it all the time. C.S. Lewis said it like this, He walks everywhere incognito, that's Jesus, and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake still more, like once you see it, he says, to remain awake. The beauty of a lifestyle anchored in God's presence is that we can sustain others many times just like Paul did. You know, one of the reasons that we encourage people to be in gospel communities at Element is sometimes you will go through a shipwreck in your life and you will need other people to come alongside you and strengthen you in the faith that they have. And many times we do that maybe when things aren't melting down and we can trust God when when we have clarity around us, but we know that we are people who belong to God no matter what. And we can step into each other's lives and strengthen one another and we can live a lifestyle that shows that. The second thing we need to remember is that we are a people who know that God actually owns us. He has purchased us with great cost to himself. When Paul speaks of this angel visiting him to these sailors, he says next, 27 verse 23, This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Like Paul sees himself as God's property. 
Throughout the scriptures, we are told that we belong to God like a bride and groom belong together. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16 says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. The Bible constantly uses this wedding language and reference to illustrate our union with Jesus. In Ephesians 5, Paul will talk about the marriage relationship and he concludes by saying, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. We belong to him like a husband and a wife, like a sheep to a shepherd, like a child belongs to a father. We belong to God because he bought us with Christ's blood that was shed for us. In 1 Corinthians 16, 20, it says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. See, Paul lives the way that he did because he knew that God's possession of him was not just the fact that God was creator, though God was, but to the one transcendent act of divine love. And that is that Jesus came and gave his life to purchase us for himself. It's the gospel. God's ownership enabled Paul to stand firm in the storm, and it can do the same thing for us. And then the third thing, you know, after we understand that we have God's presence, that we belong to Him, thirdly, we then are sent on God's mission to live and work with Him in the world around us. There's this old movie called The Blues Brothers, and there are these two guys in it, and they do a bunch of crazy things because they believe they are on a mission from God. They're not. But we actually are. We are. And the mission is to speak of His name, offer the grace we receive. We get to bless others because we've first been blessed. We get to love others because we have first been loved, Paul knew nothing can harm him unless God allowed it. And he was never bitter when God allowed it. He knew it all served a greater purpose. By trusting Jesus, by constantly putting his eyes where you're supposed to be, by serving Jesus, Paul and us can both experience a sustaining assurance. And that is one of God's great gifts to his people, to the committed. Paul knew that to the fullest. Through all of this, Paul displays the courage he does because he simply believes what God has said and what God has done. Paul gets in the mid, up in the midst of this chaos and this storm, and he says what God said to him, Acts 27, verse 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul just doesn't take that and huddle it and hold it to himself. Paul then goes and then says to the sailors, verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. And that is exactly what happened. Truly trusting in God's sovereignty enables us to live lifestyles where we can speak words of encouragement and speak words of grace into the midst of people's storms in their lives. And we only do that with words that won't ever sound trite or stupid if they understand we have been through storms as well. That we have trusted God in the midst of things that we have gone through. And we can come out on the other side stronger than we ever were before we went in. Our faith becomes a true tested faith in God's goodness above all of our circumstance. And it is true. After Paul's encouragement, they go through many days of this storm, buffeting the ship, knocking, all, all, knocking the ship all over the place. They're dropping anchors all over the place, you know, nearing the shore, death on the rocks. What are we going to do? Which really kind of leads to this question that Michael asked last week in the talking element, if you saw it. You know, Michael asked the question, he goes, you know, why if, if God is sovereign, why are there storms and shipwrecks? You know, he says, if God controls the winds and the waves, why wouldn't he spare Paul or spare us in the midst of those things? And, and I had this answer where, where I said, I think it's, it's improper for us to say this is how God has to act and work in the world in order to please me. God is God. He's know what, he knows what he's doing in our lives. And what I can tell you is that God allows things to come our way because he loves us. 
And God will give us sufficient grace to endure. That grace comes from His Holy Spirit and the community that He has placed us within. Because many times, storms and shipwrecks can actually be for our benefit and the benefit of others. When you read through the Scriptures, you see that Paul was somebody who was mature in Christ, but God will still use the the shipwrecks and the things that he went through to grow him more and more into the likeness of Christ, to be a better minister to those who need to hear about God. And when I think about this shipwreck, I wonder after it all went down, maybe, you know, years later, when everybody's alive and they're thinking back to this crazy shipwreck they went through, if maybe they would say, I'm really glad I went through that. I learned so much stuff in the middle of that. Because in the end, none of them died and they all made it to Rome. And Rome is where they were going. But God is the one who was getting them there the way he was. One commentator says this, We are often objective-oriented, but God is process-oriented. And what he means by that is many times we have an object. I've got to get this thing or I've got to get to this place like Rome. But he says God is more interested in how we get to Rome or wherever you're going. Like I, again, personally think those storms can be good for us and good for other people in our lives because it will show other people what we truly believe about God. When we say these things like we trust Jesus, we love Jesus, the storm hits, it's going to show if we really do actually love Jesus. And it's going to help us because it's going to reveal what our own character is like. You know, what our own faith in Jesus really looks like. Are we like those sailors who want to cut down the boat and sneak off and leave everybody else to their fate? Are we like the soldiers who'd rather cause other people pain or death than have to face it ourselves? Or are we like Paul, who is willing to go through all these things with all these people in order to speak more of the gracious good news of God, even in the midst of a storm? Now, Luke doesn't record this per se, but I think that a lot of these people on this ship probably came to trust Jesus with their lives because they got to see Paul not just in the middle of a shipwreck, but after the shipwreck on this island of Malta, they spent a couple months there. And then they get to see Paul just in the normal, mundane, average life. And they got to see how he and his companions trusted God even there. They didn't run. They didn't hide. They faced forward to what God had called them to. So here's my questions for you today. Are you in some sort of storm? And if you are, are you trusting God in the midst of it? And then, what does your lifestyle in the midst of your storms say about your faith in Jesus? And I don't ask you those questions to make you feel guilty when and if you don't handle storms well, because we're all in the middle of a storm right now. What it's meant to do is remind us to be a people to trust what God has said over us, that He is with us, that that He does own us. And we can be in relationship with one another, and we can help steer one another back to an understanding of God's presence, that He is with us in all things. And that reality that we belong to Him, should sit so deep within us that it brings us such great hope that nothing can take us from His hand. And we are now called to serve others. And the object of our faith is not made truer by how much faith we can muster up. It is found true because the object of our faith, the object of our faith is Christ Himself. And when we have this trust in Him, our lifestyle will begin to prove that out. Because we have to understand that God is always, always faithful. And we are the ones, by the way, we live our lives most of the time that run here and there and all over the place and we, you know, scream and yell and wonder what God is doing and we're the ones who end up being unfaithful. God is always faithful. And how do we know that? We know that because it's like what Paul speaks about. We know that because Jesus came to rescue us. God didn't leave it as to our own fate to try and figure out how to work for our own salvation. Jesus came to rescue us, as God always promised that He would. 
This is one of the reasons, like, at Element, you know, we talk about this thing called communion. And again, I know it's awkward and weird uh, in your homes because it's not like communion at Element where it's served there and it's kind of a natural part of what we do. But if you would like to take communion, it would just be, you know, a, a piece of bread that you can break that reminds you of Christ's body that was broken for us. Uh, some grape juice or some wine that reminds you of his blood that was shed. It's meant to be a remembrance of God's faithfulness and goodness, that we are people who belong to him and we can trust him no matter what we go through. And right now, COVID is a really big storm that is breaking apart our ship in a lot of different metaphorical ways. But we can trust him in the midst of it because we know that God is faithful in all things. And I would encourage you to remember the gospel what Christ has done to rescue us. If you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. You can send your prayer request to connect at rlment.org. You can put it on the side of the live stream if you would like. Uh, and we would get a hold of you if you want us to actually pray with you. We would, we would love to do that, to that as well. Um, we are a people who want to come alongside one another and love one another and encourage and strengthen one another's faith. If you would like to give, you can do that online. Uh, you can also mail it to our address at, at Elements on our website. You can get that there. But I would encourage you this week to maybe spend some time with some people and talk through some of the questions that are in there. You know, what storms are you going through? And you can say COVID. It's okay. We all know it's there. You know, and then how do we react during that? Do, are we showing everyone around us? that we trust Jesus in the midst of this storm or whatever storm that we're going through at a given moment? Do our lives reflect the grace that we know that we have received and that no matter what comes our way, God is still faithful and good and he will ultimately bring us to himself because we have that assurance. Let's be a people who live in that great assurance of God's grace spoken over us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take us as a people and remind us of your goodness spoken over us. That you have led us many times to exactly where we need to be. And you reveal yourself more and more in those places. God, quite frankly, there are times when we are running our own direction, not listening to you at all. But you meet us in those places and you will steer us back to you. Teach us to be a people who trust you who don't always think that we have all the answers, but understand that you do. And we can know that you love us and care for us because of what you have done in the person of Christ. Teach us to trust your salvation spoken over us and that we would then live out lives that speak of your grace and your goodness to those around us, that we would be your ambassadors and that we would live lifestyles that speak of the good news that you have rescued us. Have us be your people in this world, living for your name and all that we do. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.